Thanks for listening. Farm and Country is next. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, we'll hear Amy Theobald from Creamworks, who took a break from serving ice cream at the Holy Market Stand to speak with us on a hot summer day. Then Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with educator and lead designer Andrew Faust at the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York. In her segment Now You Know, we'll hear about permaculture infrastructure. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Department of Justice is asking a federal appeals court to end the third-party review of documents recovered from the Florida resort of former President Trump. NPR's Ron Elving reports this comes after the Supreme Court Thursday rejected a request by Trump's lawyers to restore their access to classified materials. Justice Thomas passed it on to the full court to decide. The full court response was one sentence long and a rather dismissive sentence at that. So last night, the Justice Department asked the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta to simply dismiss the special master and end the review of these documents ordered last month by a lower court in Georgia. Uh, That was a rather bold move by Justice that suggests they think they may have the upper hand here. NPR's Ron Elving. The U.S. Department of Defense has authorized another major shipment of military equipment and medical supplies to Ukraine. NPR's Nathan Rott reports it's the 23rd shipment to the country in the past year. The latest drawdown from U.S. stockpiles includes artillery shells, anti-tank systems, rockets, small arms ammunition, and vehicles. Military equipment the Ukrainian army desperately needs as it continues to try to defend against Russian offensives in the country's east and south, and as it pushes its own advances into Russian-held land. Not included in the shipment and wanted by Ukrainian officials are air defense systems. Russia has renewed widespread missile strikes against Ukraine in the last week, repeatedly hitting targets around Kyiv, the country's capital, and here in western Ukraine. The strikes have damaged energy infrastructure and are leading to power outages in many regions and towns. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Lviv. Britain got its fourth Treasury Secretary in four months yesterday. Prime Minister Liz Truss fired Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng after only 38 days in the job and only 24 hours after he insisted he wasn't going anywhere. Vicki Barker reports from London. A cartoon in Britain's Telegraph newspaper has a newsreader saying, Warning, viewers in other countries may find the next item hilarious. The dismissal of Kwasi Kwarteng was just the latest in a series of political and economic U-turns by the new prime minister. Former conservative leader William Hague has publicly stated what many in the governing conservative party are briefing journalists privately. Truss's job 
hangs by a thread after weeks of market turbulence. Among the few beneficiaries of that turbulence, U.S. tourists. They're heading to the U.K. in growing numbers, spending a British pound that has fallen to new record lows since trust took office. For NPR News, I'm Vicki Barker in London. This is NPR News from Washington. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with educator and lead designer Andrew Faust at the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about permaculture infrastructure. But first, here is a taste of my visit with Amy Theobald from Wayne County's Creamworks Creamery at the site of Friday's Farmer's Market in Hawley, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Beeline ice cream is popular for a reason. You can taste the ingredients sourced locally from the Delaware River Valley. Beekeeper Mark Randall extracts honey from his hives and mixes it with fresh milk from Creamworks Creamery. I found Amy Theobald at her Hawley, Pennsylvania market stand earlier this year, and she took the time to speak with me about her family farm. Hi, my name is Amy Theobald, and I own and operate Riverside Farm and Creamworks Creamery at 1509 Creek Drive, Waymart, PA. Well, I have to say, I came by knowing about you because I eat honey ice cream that I get in Narrowsburg, New York. And he said, oh, yes, I get it from Creamworks. You have to go find her. Look look it up and find her. And I can see why after tasting it. I mean, Mark makes it with honey, sourced locally from Pennsylvania. Tell me a little bit about your background. I am a fourth-generation dairy farmer on my home farm. My husband married the dairy farmer. And in 2010, my husband decided he was going to build a creamery because he knew that the next generation was not going to be able to survive in the dairy industry without a niche market. At the time, I was actually going back to college. It took us a few years to get the creamery off the ground, and we bottled milk for six years before we started ice cream, and now we're up to 25 flavors, I believe, and we've, we have our own uh, all-natural recipe of vanilla that we can't keep in stock because that goes out. We had people that didn't want anything with gums in it. And we've established a following, and um, here we are. Well, you mentioned you were off to college. What were you going to study? I am a board-certified veterinary technician in Pennsylvania. That's helpful on a farm. Yeah, I had a lot of the practical experience first. I tell people I was raised in my dad's back pocket, so there's a whole lot I haven't seen. But when I can't solve it, I still call my veterinarian. And there's a lot of good ones around here. What inspires you to make your product and do the things that you do right now? Family and the fact that we want to keep our farm in the family and to see the next generation be able to prosper and change with the changing times and uh, to stay sustainable. We are in Wayne County, and I know Wayne Agriculture really has a high regard for dairy farmers, and they look progressively to promote your industry. 
Amy, were you ever a member of Future Farmers of America? I was. I was the last president of the Western Wayne chapter in 1985. We'll see, and here you are, a very successful farmer. What do you have to say to young farmers these days? If it's what you really love and you're not really worried about becoming a millionaire, then follow your dreams. But you're going to have to have a niche market to compete in this monopoly dairy world that we live in. Do you recommend young people joining FFA? Oh, absolutely. The local chapter in Honesdale is doing a phenomenal job teaching life skills that the kids won't learn in the classroom. How are you doing? What kind of challenges do you have right now? Our son came back to the farm last September, and meeting payroll is a challenge. My husband and I are still on sweat equity with our creamery. We've just invested so much of our own personal money and time and blood, sweat, and tears into this to make it go. Affording employees, workman's comp, health insurance, everything that goes along with all those challenges, and now the price of fuel, fertilizer, grain, and plastics is our biggest challenges at this point. Yikes, you have a lot on your plate. You're obviously very popular and successful. What sets your ice cream or your dairy aside from others? Our milk goes from our barn, from Riverside Farm, to Creamworks, Inc., and it doesn't get handled and mishandled. And we only take the fat levels down to where the state of Pennsylvania says that has to be because our Jersey cows produce more fat than the state will allow in whole milk. And because it goes from our creamery right to our store or the grocery stores within two days of production, it's fresher and it tastes better because we haven't taken anything else out of it for big industry uses. Mm-hmm. What do your cows eat that makes the ice cream taste so good? A few years ago, we changed their whole diet, and now we feed more of our own forages, as much hay and grass as they want to eat. They still get corn silage, but they get more forages and less purchased grain and a balanced mineral in their grain. We grow the hay and the corn. Well, you're so knowledgeable, you're strong, and your ice cream stand is a a testament to your product and your life. I'll let you get back to work, but is there anything that you'd like to add before we close? Just remember that your local producers during a pandemic were able to sustain your families. And that is, we found out how fast big industry could be crippled. We all just experienced it. But Wayne County is blessed to have two dairies that produce cheese, milk, ice cream. And we can produce a whole lot of other um, commodities here as well. So just remember that agriculture really is the first important thing that you need to support, especially during a pandemic, which just because this one's over doesn't mean we can't have something else come around the corner. That's right. And how are you doing with the supply chain? We're having trouble getting lids for our small containers that we sell at the farm store. So we had to find different containers with lids. So far, so good. I keep a supply ahead, especially in the fall. I order ahead so we don't get in a mess like about August when we're starting to run short on supplies. Amy Theobald from Creamworks Creamery, thank you so much for taking the time I dragged you away from your stand and your family and your workers, and you truly are a gift and a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. Amy wrote to me that the Holly Market is open Fridays in Bingham Park from 2 to 5 p.m. with vendors serving from their stands through October 28th. Creamworks family members 
Sarah and Matthew McNichols are 4-H members and were present at the Wayne County Fair Dairy Barn this summer. You can see their photos on display during October at the Union's Digital Gallery in Narrowsburg, New York for the project Why I Farm. And this precious sound is 11-year-old Lila who was playing her violin in Bingham Park at the Holy Farm Market. sustainably. Andrew was the lead designer and educator at the Center for Bioregional Living. Andrew, please define permaculture. What aspects of sustainability does it encompass? Great question. Permaculture encompasses all the aspects of sustainability. It's looking at every input and output of a human settlement or community. And so it's considering how are we producing our food? How are we producing our energy? Where are our building materials coming from? How is it that we're medicating ourselves, clothing ourselves? And it really looks at the entire ball of wax that goes into the life and the needs of the citizens of a particular place. And it wants to make things more place-based. And you didn't mention how we get rid of our garbage. Permaculture really approaches things from this less than immediately obvious viewpoint of wanting to redesign from the ground up how we make things so that what it is that we're throwing away can turn back into soil or have a positive impact on the environment. And that much of what we've been, in a sense, conditioned to call waste in the modern era comes from the industrialization and the chemicalization of the most mundane products that we're using in our daily lives, like for instance, packaging. And that these things could be made out of plants that are renewable and continuously harvested from a planted area. Conceivably, we could be making plastics out of plants like Japanese knotweed. And if we were making plastics in, let's say, containers you put your leftovers in, in materials that you could just add to your compost pile, then this conception that waste is something that we need to vigilantly and responsibly handle begins to be diffused. If a person wants to try to conserve and to practice permaculture, can they be anywhere? Permaculture is it's a way of understanding the world. It's a way of thinking about why are you buying what you're buying. So it, what people are learning about and getting inspired by in permaculture could be called conscious consumerism. The process of thinking about who are we supporting when we buy the particular things that we are buying. And that is an aspect of practicing permaculture that you can apply no matter where you live. Arguably, it's more important 
when you live in urban environments where you're potentially producing less and consuming more. In those settings, it's even more meaningful for individuals to be thinking about what restaurant am I going to? Where are they sourcing their food from? Where is it that I'm shopping? What are the products that I'm eating supporting? And this type of ethical consideration of what it is we're contributing to by purchasing is a very important aspect of what permaculture teaches its students in. And we focus a good bit on that in New York City and helping people hook up with community-supported agriculture farms that do drop-offs at the Sixth Street Community Center so that people in high-density places like Manhattan or Brooklyn can access really high-quality, highly nutritious local food at a reasonable price point because the CSA drop-off is going to have a better price per pound than if they're going to the 14th Street Square Union Market. Thinking about even things like water filters and filters on your shower heads and buying organic sheets and hemp clothing that's made naturally so that people can avoid hypoallergenic reactions to noxious things that go into many of the products that they're putting on their bodies or ingesting. So a big part of permaculture is thinking about diet, thinking about clothing, and thinking about health and lifestyle. And now we teach largely online. So many of our participants are coming from places like England or Portugal. Many of them are still largely coming from Brooklyn and Manhattan, but also all over the country and all over the world. So a big part of how we teach is making these ideas something that people can apply no matter where they are. When people are in a place in their life where they want to buy land, we help them buy the right property for the right price that fits what their goals are. I know how to interpret landscapes really well, and I've built a number of houses in the area, and so I can quickly discern whether land or a house that's an existing house is really going to be a decent choice for what, say, a young couple or a community wants to be purchasing. Andrew, do you have solar panels to generate electricity? How do you get your electricity? When we bought this property, I wasn't chagrined by the fact that it's a grid-tie 1950s ranch house because it has great southern orientation and we were able to put rain tanks off of it and not use our well or any electricity to provide pressurized water for all of our irrigation and washing needs throughout the growing season. And so what I like to look at are we generating electricity with solar panels or wind? Another question is, are we getting work done by passive systems that require no electricity in addition to generating electricity with something that's deemed renewable? And in particular, gravity feeding water is a major energy consumption. If you looked at energy analysis of the U.S. system, you would see that one of the highest uses of energy is moving water, that we use a ton of pumps, we use a lot of fossil fuel inputs to move water around, deep well pumps in the rural landscape. So now we do have a grid-tied solar array. I wasn't necessarily wanting to dive into fully off-grid. It's overblown as the most important thing that we need to be doing in order to improve our quality of life and in order to improve our ability to address climate change. 
more importantly, what we want to be looking at is where is our food coming from and how can we shorten the distance of the transportation of our food? Could we begin to have what I call a full diet year-round food supply within a reasonable distance of where we live? And my approach to that is not to say that each individual household becomes a self-sufficient homestead. It becomes a lot more achievable and enjoyable if we looked at that on a broader community-wide scale, what does it look like for the Rondout watershed for all the way from Wurtsboro to Kingston to begin to go food independent? Could we grow all the food for all the people here year-round in the Rondout watershed? And it turns out from lots of different data points that I've collected that in fact it's quite achievable. In the Rondout watershed, we've got about 700,000 acres of land here and there's about 92,000 people who live here. And in order to grow all the food year round for each person, estimates are it's as little as 1.6 acres of land. So if you can say, all right, so we've got 92,000 people, how many acres is it gonna take? It adds up to about 120,000 acres. So of the 700,000 we've got, we could conceivably grow all the food for all the people year round in the Rondout watershed on a mere 120,000 of those 700,000 acres. I would encourage your listeners to explore these ideas of broader regional scale master plans that focus on food security and food independence, coupled with energy security and energy independence. I wonder how you fertilize. You're not gonna use the inorganic fertilizer that you buy in the store. How do you fertilize your fields and gardens? Well, that's a great question. One of the things I really like to advocate your listeners to explore is the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, for instance, and many studies that you can find out there online about the safety and utility of using human urine for fertilizer. Your own urine, cut 10 parts water to one part urine, not straight urine. But urine, human urine, is fecal coliform free, E. coli free, totally sterile, and a good mix of potassium, phosphorus, and nitrogen. And when you mix it 10 parts water to one part urine, it is an excellent topical liquid fertilizer for your house plants in the city, for your plants in your garden. We also use effluent from our biodigester. So our biodigester, when black water and gray water come out of it, is also 99% fecal coliform and E. coli free. We use those as liquid fertilizers. Now our solid fertilizers usually either compost from the Kerhonkson community compost or goat beddings from our goat shed. And so we use a combination of on-site animal bedding, off-site sourced from the community compost, which uses all food scraps to create their finished product. There's a site right here in Kerhonkson nearby, and we like the quality of their compost. And then we also use effluent from our biodigester. And how does that biodigester work? Well, it's basically a plug-and-play alternative to a septic tank. So if your listeners are familiar with typical country residential dwellings that don't have municipal sewage or municipal water, are all going to have a private well as well as a septic tank and a leach field. These anaerobic digesters in here at the Center for Bioregional Living are in effect a high-tech engineered septic tank. And what they're doing is they're taking all the waste stream from the house just like your septic does, but 
it is engineered to be able to capture the methane from the decomposition of the biosolids. What a septic tank does in the conventional system is the biosolids just sit there in the tank and hopefully break down enough that you don't have to get your septic tank pumped very often. So when you hear of people getting their tank pumped, that's because the septic tank fills up with biosolids. Then after it goes out of your septic tank, it goes to your leach field. The leach field is the thing that when I'm walking property for clients, I'm often helping them understand all of these variables that planning boards are going to cause them to have to pay attention to if they want to build a home. And the reality is the leach field is the bottleneck for a lot of rural properties because many sites around here are too wet for proper percolation for your leach field. So what the anaerobic digester is doing is taking biosolids, biodigesting them, and through that digestion, capturing the methane, and then sending the methane out of the tank pressurized. You can run your two burner stove off of them for cooking. You can run a hot water heater off of it, just like you can run it off of propane, or you could run a generator off of them. In China, this technology is so well developed that something like 30,000 biodigesters, they estimate, power 20 million homes in China. So 20 million people get all of their power, all of their cooking fuel, basically from their septic tank. That technology we are excited to explore as a possibility here as an alternative to conventional septic so that not only do you get improved waste cleaning of the waste load, but you also get an energy harvest from it. You mentioned gray water. Isn't the soap that's in the water harmful to your plants? It really isn't as long as your soaps aren't particularly caustic. In other words, if your soaps don't have a lot of essential oils and they don't have a lot of chlorine or Clorox or fabric softeners, now those things aren't just soap. So as long as what you're using is basically soap, even conventional like name brands that people will be familiar with, stuff like Dawn or Ivory or these types of soaps, totally fine. Plants can eat this stuff, no problem. Now, when I'm applying these liquid fertilizers, whether it's the urine cut with 10 parts water to one, or whether it's effluent from my biodigester, just like any good gardener, I'm not gonna apply those close to harvest, and I'm gonna keep a regular schedule so I know that I'm only putting them on the plants at the base of the plant on the soil, not foliar feeding them with these particular nutrient loaded waterings, but putting it on the soil at the base of the plant and only doing it at the most once every 10 days and never before a harvest. Typically right after a harvest is when I'll fertilize say a leaf crop like kale or arugula or leaf lettuce. Right after I do a cutting I'll fertilize and that way I know it's been growing and growing and growing and then I'll harvest and I'll fertilize again. Do you have to buy special equipment aside from your biodigester? Simplify your lifestyle by beginning to just divert organics from your trash. The big focus on permaculture really is bringing farming and gardening back to people power and hand tools. So you'll find that in the permaculture community there's a keen leaning towards hand sighing and using the old size for cutting and for haying. There's a big focus in permaculture on avoiding this tendency to buy a lot of stuff in order to be able to practice it. That it's really more about plant knowledge first, so that the more that you can 
look at a place and see what's already there that you could get a harvest from and help it do better, that doesn't end up basically costing you anything except one of the most valuable things, which is your time and your labor. What I've been working on has been an educational program. We create unique programming for many organizations in the area. And where would they look for that information of when your workshops are going to occur? It's all on our website at permaculturenewyork.com, New York all spelled out. You'll see it on our homepage. We welcome calls, welcome emails. Thank you. So now you know that it's possible to recycle just about anything. Our permaculture expert has been Andrew Faust, lead designer and educator at the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville. If you have suggestions for future Now You Know segments, please contact me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteer Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Amy Theobald from Creamworks Creamery on Riverside Farm and educator and lead designer Andrew Faust at the Center for Bioregional Living in Ellenville, New York. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions providing tools for action and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Set it off with your host, Clyde Alvin Yates Third. Set it off. Saturday night at 7. Set it off on Radio Catskill.